Welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast. I am your host, Matt Parker. It has been a long break for me from podcasting and, and getting into my bag of tech news, media, founder insights, all those things. But we're back. Stretch 4 Podcast is officially back this week, taking a hiatus. Had my second son, who was born on September 26th. And life changes when you run a startup and you have two children under two and you live in a place like San Francisco. So the dynamics of that maybe are for another day and another show. But, you know, back to the news that's related to things I like to cover. So if you're a first time listener here, the Stretch 4 podcast, uh, what we do, the uh, Stretch 4 media plan is to produce a weekly newsletter, a weekly podcast where we talk about life and business as it relates to being a venture-backed founder in the heart of Silicon Valley. On the show, we typically dive deep into all the things that are happening in the venture-backed ecosystem from how founders are building companies, what they're seeing, what they're learning. And we explore really how these businesses get built here in Silicon Valley. And we try to do it from a perspective of a founder, right? Lots of tech news and lots of media out there. Uh, focuses on different facets of technology, whether it's the actual technology being built, whether it's the venture capital and how they are organized to deploy capital into good or bad companies. Um, but here on the Stretch Four Insights podcast newsletter, we try to focus on the business, the lifestyle, the motivations, and the essential things founders need to be doing to optimize performance for success with both their company as well as their life. I share a lot of my own insights, two-time venture back founder, uh, working currently on my second venture back company, Modern Tax, uh, where you can check out more about that at moderntax.io. But additionally, we try to highlight tactics that work for founders at the earliest stage of building. Um, so utilizing the strategies that they've learned. Uh, this show today is very interesting. We have a guest who was a part of a $2.5 billion exit in 2020, and he's right back at it. Uh, with another company that we'll we'll delve into, but we try to like unlearn or unlearn or learn, you know, really what founders feel and how they approach uh, building businesses. Because my my premise is founder, you know, startup Silicon Valley venture back founders are, you know, it's a career. It's not particularly like something that's different from just someone who has a job at a company. Repeat founders are typically the ones that are you know, more successful. And a lot of times, you know, when you're a founder, like you haven't really had another job or, you know, the case of very successful founders, when we think about Mark Zuckerberg or Dylan Field at uh, Figma, you know, or Elon Musk, you know, many of these men or women have not had a, you know, nine to five, right? Literally, right? I think about my background. I had two nine to five jobs before I started to dabble and dabble in entrepreneurship. And you know, I'm coming up on over six years of being an independent venture back founder. So it is a career. And so we try to uh, utilize this platform to uh, promote and both, uh, you know, showcase founders, but also get the insights, the good and the bad and the ugly that comes with this lifestyle. So additionally, it's also important to rem to remind people here, you know, no single tactic will guarantee you success. A big part of this show is that there is a lot of subjectivity around how to build companies, who should build companies, what are venture back companies. I mean, we even get into this talking this talking point in today's show about what is actually a venture back company 
2024 and what is success as it pertains to venture? And then what is success as it pertains to just business success? And what I'm learning in my own business is things are getting very murky, right? Five years ago, if you would have told someone you're just trying to build a profitable company that generates millions of dollars in revenue, people would have told you that that's not a venture backable idea and it's a lifestyle business. Fast forward to today and a lot of those same companies that were built to be these massive outcomes, but they've done it in an unprofitable fashion are really, really feeling the pressure right now. Just this week, we heard the story of Brex laying off 20% of their staff after burning through roughly 17 to $20 million per month in 2023 and not seeing significant growth. And this is one of the darlings since I've been in the Silicon Valley zeitgeist. You know, one of the companies that's very well celebrated reached a $12 billion valuation. And now people are wondering what the landing spot will be for their company because their growth is not matching up with the, the spin. So, and, and I think that's a big point of reference is what is healthy? What is venture backable? What is a company that should be raising venture capital? And we'll talk a bit about that in the show today uh, with our guests. You know, I've built, you know, failed startups. Now I'm working on my third startup. And I really wanted to get inside the minds of people that are high performers. And so today's guest is clearly a high performer. He was a 40th employee at a company that exited for two and a half billion dollars. He sold his company prior to that to Hotel Tonight. And now he's working on his second startup and he has a lot of great insights around, you know, as you, again, build this career as a venture back founder, how do you, you know, over, you know, you know, how do you do things and how do you perform? We don't get much into a lot of the other stars, things that we talk about in this show, like sleep, diet, health, gym, relationships. But we do talk a bit about San Francisco. We dive into what B2B SaaS really is. What are the metrics and economics of building a massive B2B company? And we also get a bit into how to build a company with an ongoing relationship with a core set of founders and a core set of people. So what's really interesting about the company that we're going to talk about today is it is what I would call a mafia style model where these folks were a part of a large exit at a previous company and now they've moved on to start another company, but they've brought back you know, a large percentage of people that saw that success. And so that's a very interesting insight. So check out the newsletter, stretch4.substack.com. Look at previous episodes if this is your first show on Apple and Spotify. Also, we do have a YouTube, uh, Stretch4 News to, uh, YouTube. So we will have shows there. Uh, and then check me out on Twitter, Matt A. Parker and, and LinkedIn as well. Email me directly, matt at stretch4.co, if you have any insights, any learnings, any founders you think would be great guests on the show, or any stories we should be talking about that might relate to our main focus in the venture back community. Without further ado, let's get started and let's get into episode 21. Happy to be back and, and thank you all for listening. Welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Parker. I'm here with a very special guest today as someone who's really, really uh, built his career around data and analytics. So our guest on the Stretch 4 Podcast today is Colin Zima. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Colin is a what I would probably call a data rock star. He began his career in finance. So he began, like many Silicon Valley careers, uh, begin in a financial role out of college, coming out of Princeton, um, and took an unconventional 
approach into getting an attack. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, but he attended culinary school actually. And then in that world, he discovered technology and just the passion for it. And that led him to make this career shift, uh, which then led to some time at Google. So he spent time at, at Google and in their search data operations business. But he really, really started to skyrocket when he started his own company. And so this podcast is definitely talks a lot about entrepreneurial journey. So he sold his first company actually to Hotel Tonight. And at Hotel Tonight, he became the fourth customer of a company, a small little company that sold to Google for a couple billion dollars called Looker. And later he joined them as one of the, you know, the 40th employee at Looker. And now he's building, he's starting from scratch uh, with almost $30 million in funding from first round Redpoint, GV, Box Group, and, and the list goes on of some hundred or so angels to build the next-gen analytics platform post the Looker and Tableau view. So Colin, a uh, lot to unpack today, but very, very illustrious introduction and, and kind of what you've done has been very, very fascinating. And so for 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 context for our audience I would love to start at the career in finance. I think that's a big transition. People start in finance. They typically hate it. They find their way to Silicon Valley to start building companies or working at tech companies. What was your journey like in the financial world transitioning into the tech world? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And that was a great intro. Thank you. I mean, I think I'm actually one of the rare people that liked finance. I think a lot of people go into finance because... You know, they they do the college campus tour, and it's a good place to go make money after school. I'd worked in kind of summer internships in finance all through college, all four summers at the same place, and I actually wanted to you know run a hedge fund or something like that. I really enjoyed sort of the game of playing finance, like trading, trying to make money every single day, is just sort of this fun adrenaline rush, and so I like that side of it. I didn't really ever intend to leave, but actually my wife started law school in San Francisco. And one of my best friends from college, one of my current co-founders at Omni and my previous co-founder, Jamie, was at Google. And I sort of said, you know, I'll give the tech thing a try. And if it fails, I'll go back into finance. But it looks interesting. I can go day trade in the morning. So for a couple of years from 6 to 9 a.m., I was actually day trading and then going to work. And that's kind of how I landed in tech. And I think sort of what I realized after that transition was just not necessarily even tech, but just the corporate life was very different. And if you look at sort of the big investment banks, it's very hierarchical. And I think this is how a lot of gigantic companies work is, you know, your title sort of directly sets how important you are in the organization and you defer to everyone one step above you and one step above them and so on and so forth. And the interesting thing coming to Google, which was... I think about 10,000 at the time, so still a big company, but it felt like you could just go do things and you could you could try to make a decision that that made something happen and that felt really exciting versus sort of like the hierarchy of finance. And I think that's when I sort of realized that corporate life in like the positive sense was very interesting to me. And there was just so much good stuff happening in in tech that I just sort of kind of have fallen forward through the career path since then. Like, was that Google sort of just decided to go try to start something just honestly, just because we thought starting something was a good idea and then have just sort of fallen into the next job the last four times, including sort of Omni right now. And that's an interesting approach because I think 
now, you know, if we look at the headlines today, Google is announcing layoffs. And it seems like that world of just being able to do something and create and build is somewhat passing. It seems like almost like the tech companies, at least at the large scale, are becoming more like the Wall Street private equity world of like, yep. let's stop spending money. Let's cut cut the, you know, cut the fat. Let's let's get to work. What do you think? Of, how do you feel about it now? Right. Like in the 2024 day, if you're either working on Wall Street or graduating from college, uh, obviously you're hiring an Omni, I'm assuming. What's the early stage career energy like as it was? How's it changed from the time you transitioned into Google to now? Right. Today no, that, in 2024. Yeah. I, I think what I realized having left Google and gone to smaller companies is even when I felt empowered to do things at Google, there's an order of magnitude change when you come into Hotel Tonight at 100 people or Looker at 40 people or Omni at we're 30 now or starting our own thing. I think what I found was I was an early stage company guy and I didn't I had no understanding even of what a 50 person company looked like back from sort of like growing up on the East Coast, you know, very like, I don't know, just like big company sort of like normal type stuff. And then you walk into a place like Hotel Tonight when we landed there, and there was just stuff to do everywhere that could make the business more successful. It was like we redid the ranking algorithm um, from scratch, and we built like an A-B testing framework. And we just, we did all these projects where there was no sort of instruction. There was no boss saying like, hey, go do this thing. It was just like, here's a company. We want to book more rooms for our guests. How do you go do that? And I, I almost think that was sort of the amazing thing about going smaller. This is what I really didn't love about getting acquired by Google is just like the scope for taking control of your own destiny is just much lower. And you land at 20 to 200 person young company that is sort of struggling to exist. And you just look around and there's opportunity everywhere. And some people don't want that. Like some people want a lot more guidance and they want the like very direct mentorship. But I think just the way that I personally like to operate is I just like to kind of go, go, go. And it's not always good either. But that is what I have loved about like venture back startups is you join and you just you look around and you say, hey, this is not getting better tomorrow unless we make it better tomorrow. So how do we go make this thing better? And I think that's sort of what's fun about doing the startup thing. And from your perspective, you know, I always think about this as you know, it's like a, it's a career, right? Like you're, you're an athlete and, and you, you know, particularly you've been able to build a strong community around the teams. I mean, even kind of doing pre pre-research for this interview, um, you know, talking to one of your colleagues is like, as soon as I knew that Colin was going to go start a new company, you know, from our time at Looker, I wanted to be, to work with him. Uh, maybe talk a bit about this kind of at a high level, you could call it like the the mafia model, right? Like the PayPal mafia is like yep. the the notorious one that everybody talks about. What what is that? What what creates that synergy? What allows uh, these things to kind of compound essentially yep. over time? Like how do these relationships compound? Because you know it, it it can go the other way, right? Like you know we talk to founders who fall out and they hate each other and they don't even talk, right? How do you continue to keep that community? And how important do you think it's been? in your career and as a company builder, kind of, it, it seems like you almost are 
keeping that energy through working with a community of people versus having a restart with a whole new team and a whole new dynamic each time. But yeah, um, maybe unpack that a bit for the, for the audience and how that mafia stuff works. So, I mean, the kind of crazy thing about Omni is we're, we're 30 people right now. And the three co-founders, two of us came from Looker and one of us came from a partner of Looker stitch, but the three of us went to college together. So Jamie and I have, this is our sixth job together. So we've worked together forever. And Chris, we were talking to you back and forth for the last 10 or 20 years about like, how can we work together? So that was all serendipitous. And our company of 30, 22 of us came from Looker. And I believe five of us came from Stitch or the sort of related Stitch network. So it's, it's been nice because we're building this company in data and we have 27 people that were working in data one job ago with us that we know really well. So, I mean, it has been a superpower for us. Like, I think it's been the, probably the single biggest accelerator of our success. I think the funny thing is about sort of like the network building is I've never really thought about it or done it intentionally. Like even the time at Hotel Tonight before that or Looker, like I was never sort of thinking, hey, I'm recruiting people to work with later. I was just trying to do good work and be likable, Uh, um, you know, like be a normal person. And I think people just, I I, I think increasingly people want to work with sort of like management that is transparent and honest. And I think that's one of the things that I'm good at just because I'm, I'm not really capable of being anything except kind of a little too honest and sort of genuine. And I think the advantage was then when we, when we sort of left Looker and sort of decided, hey, we're going to do something new, it, there wasn't even a need to really reach out to people and say like, hey, we're doing something new. Will you come join us? It was sort of like, hey, I liked working with you or is there a spot for me here? And that's how we've hired a ton of the people that we've worked with. and. And a ton of our customers have actually been people that I worked with at Hotel Tonight or that I met at Google. And I think one of like my advice almost is is don't think about networking as is networking. Just like think about it as meeting people and and like having good conversations and trying to create value for each other. Like I, I can even think of a couple examples. I did a podcast maybe six or eight months ago, and I had a couple of people ping me after and was just like, hey, can you can we chat? Like I thought it was interesting. I have some thoughts. And I think it's really easy to sort of put up your guard as a as a CEO and say, like, no, I don't have time for that. And like some people probably don't have time for that. But I have time to go talk to people for 15 minutes about, you know, building companies. And what's been amazing is that in many of those examples, they have found us future customers or engaged us in conversations or honestly like been people that have taught me things. And I think sort of just like leaning into just being pleasant to be around and having interesting conversations and trying to learn from people has been our recruiting strategy. And it's not recruiting. It's just like, we're trying to be good people. And that has helped the business fall in place because you're just trying to find other good people that are capable of doing the jobs. So it's been like this very passive strategy, but it's been amazingly effective for us. And and as you've done that with that, also, you've been able to bottle up a pretty large market opportunity, I think, with with this to where now you're, you know, on a second, you know, this is like building the new data company. You also mentioned in a previous um, podcast that I thought was interesting, you said that, um, you know, at Looker, you all had like one product and you could see it getting to a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, yep. Maybe talk talk through the differences, because I think a lot of times founders in B2B, 
the market sizing is is sometimes challenging, right? Is this product yep. going to be able to can we build a standalone product that becomes a hundred million dollar a year company, billion dollar yep. a year company? Talk a bit about that in in terms of the 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 benefits of having a one trick pony you can build that becomes massive versus knowing that you need to build multiple players of different products to get to that number. Yeah. And how do you how do you think about that for 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 founders out there that are thinking about marketing yeah. and, and what markets to build in? Yep. I, I mean I think to grossly excuse me, oversimplify it you have sort of one of two advantages and one of two problems. So either you're going into a big crowded market and the revenue is known and you have to go compete. And we are very much in that, you know, BI is 40 years old. It's doing 20 billion in revenue. There's, there's no, there's no one we have to convince that there's $20 billion in revenue in the BI market because you can literally just go count it up. It's just like, do we have permission to go win it? So we're in the, we have to go fight for our lives. There's the other side of the world, which is, I'm not sure this market exists, and I can build something super interesting, and then we need to go see whether we can create a market out of this. Um, and the problem there is you need to say, like, okay, maybe it's a $10 million market now. Is it $100 million later? Is it a billion later? I, my, my biggest sort of piece of advice, and I think the thing that we think about the most, is I think being an entrepreneur and sort of starting companies, the hardest thing to do is sort of be honest with yourself. And you need to really balance between sort of aggressively being optimistic about the future. Like, of course, we can do this thing that is seemingly impossible and not lying to yourself. And I think it's really easy to say like, hey, we're going to go build a BI company. And of course, we can go get to a billion in revenue because our stuff is, is slightly better. That sort of trivializes all the other people that are, we're competing against and that have built great products and that are doing interesting things and whether we can go deplace them. So that our strategy needs to get connected to a backwards to a plan that's like, okay, it is all there. A lot of it is people that are happy with their products. Like, how are we getting in there? What is our actual strategy to enter the market? And I think similarly in, in sort of the market on the other side where I'm starting from zero, maybe there is a grain of a problem that exists and there's a hundred people that care about that problem. But you need to start going through the work of like, okay, what if I get all 100 of those people? What, what are the next 900? And you don't need to go start solving that problem immediately, but you need to be thinking about what the evolution of your product is over time so that you can actually exist as a big company. And maybe it's just not a venture-backed company. Like maybe 100 is a great number of customers. But I think, I think sort of challenging yourself to really honestly evaluate whether you can do the thing and what the path is it it actually helps you go through the exercise of like okay what does success look like and have we actually moved towards that goal versus sort of letting the thing happen to you and just sort of hoping and piggybacking off that question i know you also mentioned that you know at looker you all were uh, i believe the first round capital team said that you all were like the highest performing company of their almost 500 portfolio companies when it came to hitting the numbers so there's is is that a part of just you know there's this twenty billion dollar market and it's just a matter of getting to those people and getting the products in the hands or what type of systemic way are you designing pipelines and sales pipelines and funnels outside of obviously you'll talk to everybody you're super yep. focused on customer support um, very hands on there what other ways are you able to kind of differentiate to continually see those numbers grow. 
And, yeah. And, and, and what, what have you built in there that are at Omni that's kind of taken that to, from Looker? Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is, this is like the hardest problem I think in building a company is just like, there's never enough pipeline for anyone at any stage ever. I think it's, I think different companies need, need to use their embedded advantage. So our embedded advantage at Omni is that between Jamie and I and the other kind of 20 of us that were just in the field selling Looker, we've probably talked to five or 6,000 like literal BI customers. And we've had meaningful relationships with many of them. So, I mean, for the first year, I probably did 500 demos, 400 of which I had to go outbound people and tell them that they had to go take a demo with me. And so like the way that we started Omni was very different than if I was 22 starting a data company. Because my advantage is that I know people that have BI problems and that I have a rapport with them where they trust me to like be able to build things and make good decisions. And so like that has been the the sort of like quote unquote cheat code that we've been trying to use at Omni. And we continue to use that, which is like, I'm going to go hit up every single person I can in my network and I'm going to go ask them to introduce me to people. And sometimes they just happen to be in the market for BI. And like, we're, we're even surprised that sometimes it's like a friend of ours um, from like, that you have no ideas even buying BI stuff, but like, we're, we're going with the network sale. I mean, with Looker, it was very dependent on SDRs and sort of outbounding. And I think our embedded advantage at Looker was we were doing something that was extremely differentiated. Like there was just no one that was building the type of product that Looker was 10 years ago. And I think now there's a lot more. Our embedded advantage then was we were just moving faster than people and we were kind of going the other direction. It, it took us eight years to convince Gartner that we should even be on the magic quad because we weren't doing the things that they thought a BI tool needed to do. Um, but our customers were still buying us against all of those other products. And so like, yeah, I, I think that we're going to be figuring out that problem for the whole life of our company. But I think the answer is like, what is your embedded advantage? And then how do you go use that as sort of your, as your technique to acquire customers? So we're definitely doing that. And then, I mean, I think the other big thing, and you sort of called this out at the end is like, we're trying to give people an amazing customer experience. And so like from a support perspective, we just want every customer to be so unbelievably happy with our product that they have to go tell other people. And like we have an NPS channel where people post their scores or like they just flow through in a stream into our Slack. And we got one from a, from a prospect today. Uh, who or maybe it was yesterday, but we got a 10 and he said, I've already recommended it to two people. And this, he hasn't even bought the product yet. I, I, hopefully we'll close that deal. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you can deliver that type of customer experience and going back to the sort of previous thing, it's something that's worth money to people. I think that is how you build the flywheel is like, if you can make customers really happy to pay you $20,000, you have the seeds of a great business. And then it's just like, okay, is the market there? Can you go get in front of those people? Mm -hmm. And you also say, and, and I'd love to know <clears throat> just from a, from a product perspective, you know, you have to build this really good or great product to succeed. Like that starts the, the flywheel. What's, what's important there? Is there, is there a magic amount of time you all thought about? Obviously you weren't on, you weren't, you were already on first base with starting Omni. You built Looker, yep. you'd seen everything. Yep. But you're still starting in a way at ground zero from a product perspective. Like you're, you yeah. know, you're, you're building out the documentation from the beginning. You're specking this thing out. You have all these feature requests that you, that you understand. What does it look like for 
that product being built to be good enough. I know you also mentioned that you felt like Looker, the product wasn't in the earliest days, it wasn't always the greatest, but it was so differentiated. Yep. There was nothing like that. Yep. Uh, people were buying it. What with this business with Omni, have you, have you made it like, Hey, we need to get to this point before we yep. can ship this and start getting it in customer customers hands. And then yeah. what does the iteration cycle look like for you all? How often are you all shipping new features and, and what's the cadence there? I'll start with the last one. I think we ship, I just checked like 19 times a day. So we ship a lot. I think to your point, like we got to start probably on second base. Like we got to raise $30 million and I got to go hire a team of just incredible engineers that have built this product before. So we got to sort of cheat forward in every single possible way. I think on the flip side, we started trying to sell it in the first month also. Um, like I started trying to get people to commit to using the product immediately because in my mind, we could create something in a month that would be valuable. And And I think this is sort of where I think you can go back into a room and try to build something that you think is good enough. But I, I think my personal opinion for how to build great things is you give them to people and you sort of watch them use them and you take their feedback and you go try to iterate on it. And so, I mean, we tried to sell it for the first nine months and we continually got the feedback that we didn't have enough. And then at, at sort of like the nine month mark, which was kind of the beginning of 2013, or, uh, 2023 for us, we we actually took it out to a set of customers or early prospects and we got really positive feedback and we actually got the technical win at a couple of them. And then sort of at the last minute, we actually lost all of those deals. So we went through this period where we thought we had enough product and essentially we're told by these customers, we needed a little bit more. They needed to get more polished. I need XYZ. Mm -hmm. This type of user did not have a great experience. And I I think it goes back to like, we didn't really disagree with them. What we did was we stopped what we were doing. We fixed all of those things for two months. We spent two months on just like really tight polish. And then what happened was in June, we, we went from, I think like three to 20 customers or something like that, where suddenly the product was good enough. And I, I don't think that we knew when those milestones were, but I think because we had people touching it every single day, we started to learn those things very tangibly from from people using it. And same thing with asking for money. Like one of one of the PMs that that uh, worked with me at Looker, her company was using our product for free. She was like our first user. And I was again, this was like a hey, you need to go use this. Like get rid of your old tool, you're going to use our product. No, you don't have to pay us money, but you have to use our product over and over again. And it that was our cus our first customer 8 months and she tolerated everything that was wrong with the product. And then I think eventually it helped nudge us towards a thing that was actually valuable that people would pay money for. And it you need enough money to be able to work through these problems if you have a big team. But I, I believe that so much of it was just listening and touching. And we were using the product, of course, also. And keep asking for money. And when people start saying yes, then you're kind of on the right track. And then, and then you need to sort of connect it back to the market. And, and and that's a that's a great great standpoint or a great point of like the willingness to pay versus like building out a product. Don't want to take you take a. I want you to take us through a technical demo today, but maybe I try to ask every guest on this show. Um, yep. You know, what are the things that founders who are doing the founder led sales early, shipping their product, uh, doing demos? I mean, you mentioned running through about five hundred or so demos just in the past year. What are the things you should do like what is like what is 
Also, that was interesting in one of, I think, your interviews, you talked about your presence and how you present yourself is, is super critical. What are the, 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 the top things that you, as a founder selling your product, need to prioritize in that demonstration? And then what are the things you're looking for, obviously, besides like willingness to pay from the customer to know it's moving in the right direction? Because, I, I mean, I think for me, yeah. I've built products and I've done demos and I haven't really, yeah. really known if it's good or bad. And sometimes yeah, I yeah. Do know it's terrible and I'm like, that, yeah, that's yeah. a bad demo. What are yep. some things you think about that you you do yourself as well as you instill in yeah, your yeah. team? If I, that's I've, a big learned, I've learned a lot on this one because uh, I, I think one of the things that I've slowly learned is that I'm I'm pretty terrible at actually leading the sales process and doing a demo. I, I have a different superpower in that I'm kind of one of the founders. And so I can talk with a level of passion about our problems that is very different and kind of a lot more empathic with exactly what the customer is going through. But I think one of these mistakes that we were making early was people were having conversations with us and we were saying yes to every single person that we talked to because we were so sort of hungry for validation anyone that would give us time, we were sort of excited to talk to. And it turns out that to sell a product, you actually need to solve a pain for the customer. And I know that's obvious when you say it, but if you want to get $20,000, you need to solve a $20,000 problem for the customer. And what, that, what we learned from that was that we needed to do a lot more development upfront to understand what the current situation was, how they were solving those problems, how much the alternatives were sort of costing them or sort of what the potential was. But like, we really need to understand the pain a lot more clearly because sometimes, like, especially when you're starting a young company, people just want to talk to new businesses. It's great. Like, we need to take advantage of that as young companies because curiosity is a good thing. But you can't just talk to curious people over and over again. You need to actually talk to buyers at some point. And I think we started to do a much better job of differentiating between like, this person is curious about what we are doing and this person has a data problem that is worth money to solve. And so we started doing a lot more of that style of validation. And then, you know, like I think different sellers, myself included, sort of lean into like very different ways of doing things. Like I I really am going to sort of obsess over the technical stuff and the sort of, I think, the elegance of our product. And I think other people are much better at keying in on the pain and making sure the pain gets solved and sort of navigating the sale and things like that. And honestly, those things are a lot more important. I think the biggest thing that I try to do personally is just make sure that the customer is having a great experience. And to be clear, that is not as important as solving the pain, but it I think it does sort of engender the positivity. And uh, like one of the things that we did really well was we had these early conversations where people said the product's not ready, uh, but like cool. And I think that probably eight or 10 of them have come back and become customers a year later. And I don't think they would do that if, if we weren't really as excited about it. And I, and I think it thinks, I think our ideas are good too, but I, I think part of it is just trying to bring people along as we build it has, has been really successful for us. Oh, that's great. And, and again, you mentioned raising close to $30 million. So I know you're, you also mentioned, hey, we're on second base. You had a two, two, two and a half billion dollar exit with Looker. Things were maybe more. Uh, well designed for your fundraising experience than say your first time founder or even yes. founder who hadn't been a part of that exit. Uh, what were what were the you know from your position being in that position of say privilege? What yep. were the things that you were able to kind of make decisions on versus 
being desperate for money, right? How did you how did you navigate the people that you wanted to work with? I think you also have a hundred or so angel investors on the cap table. Yep. Uh, maybe talk me through that that process. Yeah, I mean, our, our thought process on the angels was actually like pretty well aligned with some of the networking stuff that you were talking about earlier, which is like, I want as many people on our side as possible. And if if letting more folks invest gets them biased for our success, that makes me really happy. Um, and so like, I think it is always good to try to get people a vested interest in your success. I mean, in terms of our fundraising, again, like we were so fortunate that two former Looker board members continued to like the bet on data analytics and us and sort of wanted to come along again. And so that like, I, I don't think that most people have that type of advantage, but I, I mean, certainly knowing that and knowing us was hugely advantageous for us. I mean, I think the thing that it benefited us to do was I think there are companies that are great venture businesses and companies that are less great venture businesses. And that is not to say that we're going to be successful or anything like that, but we are taking a bet that requires 15 engineers to go build for a couple of years before we think that we can really compete super effectively in the market. And that's what we've done. And now we're doing it. But like it cost us money. We we would not have been able to do what we are doing right now as a bootstrap company. That said, it ties us to going for a bigger outcome. Like we need to try to go with one of those rocket ship charts that just goes up and to the right forever. And that puts a lot of pressure on us to keep going. I mean, I think on the flip side, I am naturally very conservative. And, you know, like I built a financial plan three months into the company around like what our burn rates look like and what we can tolerate and things like that. And I, I think you need to be disciplined even if you have the advantage of having cash because you just, again, don't want to be surprised. But I think, again, like to, to go back to the, the kind of two ways of doing things, if you're in the sort of bootstrap case, or even if you just raised a seed or something like that, like I saw Jason Lemkin put out a post, you know, like do one round and then, you know, be bootstrapped after that. Like the advantage that you have there is you have the sustainability of your company in control. And so like it puts a different set of constraints on you. But the important thing is that you play the sort of game that you're intending to play. Like if you're trying to build a venture company and you can't raise money and you can't go big, you have a problem. And if you're trying to be bootstrapped and you require a lot of like a lot of cash up front to fund a big bet, you are also going to be less capable of taking that bet. And so I think you just want to make sure that you're aligned with what you're trying to do. And to kind of play that one step forward, I think you also need to share that view with investors. Like a venture investor doesn't want to invest in someone that wants to exit for $50 million. I know that's that's sad because that's life-changing money for like a lot of founders, but that if they're putting $10 million into your company, a $50 million, a $50 million exit doesn't do anything. And so like you want to understand the incentives that they have. And that ties into the story that you are telling about your business. Like I am telling a story about being the next generational BI company first, because I believe it, but second, because we're trying to go do that. Like we are trying to get to 500 million, a billion in revenue. And that is going to be a 20 year thing that we need to do. But that is also a story that venture investors like to hear. That means that we're aligned well. Um, and if you walk in and, and you don't have that type of alignment, it's, I think it's going to be harder to have that conversation. And, and as you think about this, also maybe bringing forward the conversation of when you started at Google and where Google is now with like the, the hiring and the energy, or I, I guess you could say, what does that feel like now for B2B SaaS startups? Because it seems like the public market is saying, you know, a hundred million is not enough anymore. Half a billion is yep. not enough anymore. Yep. How do you map to that 
as you see, because the market sizes aren't definitely, you know, maybe they're not astronomically growing. But where where does that take into play in in how you think about building a B2B SaaS company now where you could do what Looker did and not be at that level of an exit, honestly, for a lot of companies? How how do you think about that? No, I, 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 again, I think realism is sort of the word that I would put in there. Like, I, I think when we went through the 2019, 2020, 2021 bump where $100 million of revenue could mean that you're a $10 billion company, like, that's never, that's never coming back. Like, maybe we'll have another one of those bubbles in our lifetime, but, yeah. you know, you've got to reduce, you got to knock a zero off the number of billions that you're imagining in that scenario. I think the flip side of that is, I think if you can go make $500 million, a billion dollars, which to be clear, that is massive, massive scale for your business. Those businesses are still happily worth two and a half billion dollars in the public markets or $5 billion in the public markets. So yeah, you're not, you're probably not going to sell your company uh, at IPO for 30 times revenue anymore, unless you're growing hundred percent a year. But if the market is deep and you can grind your way uh, without spending enormous amounts of money to do it to a couple hundred, 300, 400, 500 million dollars in revenue, you will be a two and a half billion dollar company. It's just now you can't say, I'm going to go try to get to a hundred as fast as I can and then not worry if the market's there and flip it. That is not an option anymore. And so I think, again, it requires you to be really committed to where you're trying to go and just be realistic. Like if you do think that you can get to 20 million in revenue, that's still an amazing business. It's just not a billion dollar, like massive venture outcome. And and so it's just, you have to have that level of realism in your thinking, I think. And is there a number for you, B2B companies, right? Is there a yeah. number where you have, I know mentioning Jason Lemkin, you know, he, he's, he's notorious for some of these tropes and these tweets, but yep. I think one of the ones is, is like, you know, once you get to 10 million AR, you, you, you're, you have a place, right? Like you're either going to yeah. get exit, you're going to get acquired, you could become a lifestyle business. What does that look like? Because obviously if, if you're going for that half a billion dollar opportunity yeah. at each ramp, and I mean, you know, you're, you're doing this again, you know, you, your energy could burn out or the market yeah. might go a different direction. I had a, um, optimize Lee's founder, um, yep. Dan, Dan on the show. And he's like, Hey man, we, we made, I know the mistakes that I made to where we couldn't get to that next level. Yep. What are those, what are those numbers and how do you calibrate that with, with the world where this could be a 20 year run, right? Like figuring out yeah. what, how, I, what to prioritize. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that you have to almost unlock a different business with every zero. I mean, I, w- I will say Looker always felt like the exceptional case where, and I'm sure I'm sure some of our execs would disagree, but it just never felt like it was hard or like that we hit a wall or something like that. Like it always felt like the next quarter looked attainable. And those are the magic businesses. Like if you can go find a business like that to work for, run towards it because those are amazing. And I, and I think when you do look at like the really, really amazing ones, like the Figmas of the world, it's just like they become the default. And of course, they're going to be successful and there's no other option out there. But I think a lot of businesses sort of have to grind their way through each level. Like you can unlock one type of customer to get to a million, and then you need to unlock another one to get to 10 and another one to get to 100. And to sustain that forever, the market needs to be deep. And so again, I think a lot of this goes back to like, how much revenue is in your market? Who do you need to compete with to get it? What types of businesses do you need to compete for to get those things? It just, it. I think the thing with SaaS and B2B in general is... It's not like consumer where like you hit 
and it just the I, I don't want to say like Instagram was done the second they released it, but like you've reached your level of virality where it's just sort of take care of itself and and like the the product is so good that it just pulls itself through. And I think in in B two B you reset to zero every single quarter and you got to go resell it. Like you've got mm-hmm. your SaaS revenue, we love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that doesn't that doesn't add the next the next fifty the next hundred, and that just makes it hard. And and I. I, I do think that some of the messages that that Jason puts out underneath his posts are like, if you can find a hundred of your customer, there probably are two hundred of your customer. Yeah, yeah. and if you can find two hundred, there's four hundred. It's just you can't you can't just add three zeros to that and say it's going to work. Like there, you you your business is evolving underneath every single one of those stages, and so like our customers are relatively smaller than Looker's customers now. Um, just in that we're younger and like it's it's a, a more risk seeking consumer wants to work with a company that's two years old. But Looker started on venture companies, and then you know year ten, we're we're selling to the Fortune five and where their standard BI platform. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen overnight. That happens slowly. Like we get the first company in the Fortune five hundred, and then you get three of them. And now people would sort of jokingly call Looker like enterprise, like enterprise software. Yeah, and I remember early we were like the rinky dink startup that no yeah. one had ever heard of. So it's yeah. like a it's a slow evolution of what is normal, and you just need to kind of keep evolving underneath that to to be successful. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That's a great answer and a, a great way to approach it. Coming up to the end of the show, wanted to chat, you know, maybe some more about some like current events. So some things that are happening. Most recently, we see um, an issue, and you know, if you came across your death with Carta, right, and their yep. situation with. Um, their uh, liquidity product on top of their cap table solution. Uh, You as a founder, uh, these things are real, right? Um, Liquidity, valuations. I mean, these are private companies, but more and more we see as these things take longer to IPO, um, there are people that are looking for liquidity. What's been your approach there, right? Playing the long game. I mean, maybe maybe I'd love to have your take on that particular incident. Did you think it was overblown or, or did you think it was um, I simultaneously you know? think it was like poorly handled and overblown because because I, I think the funny thing is like I think you can key in on little little aspects of a thing that made it less tasteful for people like whether you could opt in or not I think the reality is I've actually been on both like I've been the employee that I thought was I was important to companies that wanted yep. liquidity on my stock and now I'm a founder and I've been a founder a couple times and like you have to manage the liquidity of the thing. Yeah. And I think the reality is trying to create a more liquid market for your employees is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like people have earned their stock in our company and I want them to be able to monetize it. At the same time, I understand why companies want to control their cap table. Like you don't want to deal with people on your cap table that you don't know. And yeah. in a private market, it's not like they're silent owners that that actually causes challenges for operating the company. And so I think if it, it's sad because I think if it was done in a certain way it could have just been pure positive for everyone. But sort of like the even the potential of abusing the idea that I am like taking care of you on this side and using that on the other side, I think is the thing that is scary for people. So like I, it would be great if employees just had a liquid market for their stock. I think that would be wonderful. I think that private companies will want more control over that, and there's going to be tension between it. And like we put fairly restrictive transfer restrictions into our 
documents mm-hmm. because we want to have that level of control. But that doesn't mean that I don't want all of my employees to make inordinate amounts of money and be very happy. It's it's just it's this tough balance. So yeah, I don't know. There's not going to be a, a tradable market for this stuff. So it's going to keep existing. Yeah, going to keep going back and forth. Another relevant topic, and I mean, you being a data rock star, being building the BI solutions, obviously I have to talk about generative AI and just kind of the past maybe 12 or so months. What's been your biggest thought or thesis around it, right? Um, And how, both from a perspective of, are you building it into Omni or are, you know, just your assessment of how it's changing the dynamic of, of, of selling software? I mean, we're trying to build it in in lots of little places. I think that we have, I, I think that like our corporate view is it's not just going to eat everything that we're doing. It's going to become more present in lots of things that we're doing. I think my general thought is that it's not productized well enough to lots of the use cases right now. It can do a lot of things and it's like mind blowing the things that it can do. But I think the best versions of generative AI are very, very tightly productized. So I, I just saw a demo, I can't even remember the company, but it was something like you could draw a sketch and then you could put some text on it and it would just draw a picture. And like the the photo generation things, I think are just absolutely incredible because the the product use case is so specific. It is like, do this thing and do it really well. I think these ideas that like whole workflows are just going to get replaced by a text box is not only like not good, I think it's actively bad in lots of scenarios. Like no one is excited to go into a support room and get a chat bot. Like literally no one prefers that experience, even if it's good. And it's because it's not tightly productized enough to the problem that the user has. And so I I think people are almost getting lazy about how they deploy them. They're just like, I'm going to put Gen AI on top of this thing and my user will be happier. And I think what it what needs to happen is that it needs to get tucked more actively into lots of different things at a much lower level that is much less like put in text box, wait 15 seconds, and then get back an answer. So it, it's it's going to be everywhere. It's mm-hmm. I just I hope it does it in smaller pieces. Yeah, of the of of the business, the businesses and the integrations. It feels like every app you use now is almost like forcing you to use AI. And yeah, some like, some are you- charged. Some Do you turn on the Gmail are... autocomplete that like finishes your emails? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, but see, then it's I like, turn it off. I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like everything that I have on my desktop that I've ever had, like Grammarly is now like, hey, like reply with AI and then, you know, sell stuff with Apollo. They have their own AI platform. Notion. Yep. I mean, even recording this, you know, this podcast on Riverside, you know, they're going to give me AI generated clips to yep. put out on, on different platforms. So it's okay. definitely filters its way through all forms of software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the AI clips and like the the parsing text out of a speech, I think those are incredible examples of it. Because like they're purely additive. They make it so I can search a video. Like that is great. But like make me a video through a text box, I think is almost like the lazy version of it. Yeah. And so like people need to go find those hooks. Like pulling out the 10 best quotes from this that's yeah. an incredible use case. Oh yeah, because because it's like it's purely additive, and I think that we haven't quite found all of those little hooks yet. No, no doubt, no doubt. Um, last thing here, we're both in San Francisco. What's the state of San Francisco? Obviously, I mean, I'm assuming you're you're here as a homeowner. Oh, yeah. You're you're long. You got kids in school here. What's your what's your opinion on it? What if you were 
if you're in London breed shoes or, you know, I guess it's even more, you know, she, she says she doesn't have much power um, yep. to, to do things, but what are you, what are you passionate about in the city? Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I'm never leaving. Uh, I have three kids and they go to school in the city and like, I'm, I'm a San Francisco lifer at this point. Um, I think that we have like the most beautiful location in the world. Like it's a beach town. I say jokingly, but like we've got mountains, we've got the the proximity to the diversity of stuff that we have plus yep. the food scene like i love san francisco it the city has definitely been in better shape so i'm also i'm not going to try to convince people that the city's in great shape and downtown especially i think is probably yep. the worst that i've ever seen it we just clearly need to do something to re-engage downtown yep. and and try to clean it up so I, I'm hopeful that that sort of thing happens and that London Breed feels like she has more power to fix these things. Yeah. Because the city's amazing. It's just like, we got to fix the the small stuff at the margins, but the mm -hmm. core is still my favorite place in the whole world. So we'll awesome. See. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm along San Francisco as well. I'm actually recording this downtown and I, I definitely feel it's, it's interesting to see like even across the street where I'm at, you know, a large Australian real estate companies building like this massive tower on market in Venice. And it's, it's interesting where, what San Francisco will look like in 10 years. Um, and it's, it's definitely going through an evolution. And I think for a lot of the founders that are here, people that are building companies, it's still the best place to do that, obviously. And then, you know, we're just trying to kind of continue to compound and, and figure out how to make it more livable, more, accept, more accessible. But uh, it's been great. Colin, this has been great catching up with Thanks you, me. meeting you for the first time. Thank you for coming on the Stretch 4 podcast. Leave us with parting words with Omni. I know we didn't get around to a demonstration, but we may have some folks using BI solutions. Maybe give us a, the best uh, best place to find out about the product and, and, yep. and where you all will be this year, maybe out on the B2B circuit. Yeah, uh, just Omni.co. Uh, shoot me an email, Colin at Omni.co. Uh, even if you're not shopping for BI, we would love to have conversations with you about data stuff. So anything that we can do to be helpful on the data side. Awesome. Colin, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me.